you're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in. Have a seat. Um, you know, before we get started, I wanted to just sort of ask you again, because I, I, I've talked about this subject on other shows, and look, I, I feel a sense of responsibility as someone that works in this business um, to be as honest as possible about how things are made, uh, about uh, why things are made, and about the intent behind them. And uh, that's what today's episode ended up becoming, right? So I sat down with uh, today's guest, um, and I really didn't know where the conversation was going to go. Um, I had met uh, the guest at a, an event. Um, it was actually a Fuji film event that I went to, um, uh, and I liked him. He was very cool. He was introduced to me. I, I checked out the work that he was doing, and I was like, this is really rad. Um, but, you know, to be transparent, that, that was over a month ago. And the way that the booking on the show happens is uh, I will contact these folks that want to be on the show. I'll send them a booking link. Um, which is great. It's like a digital secretary, which is really awesome for me. And then, um, you know, they find a date and time that works. And then later down the line, at the beginning of the week, I'll check my calendar on my phone and I'll go, oh, so-and-so is going to be on the show this week. And that's kind of how the show happens. And, you know, to be completely transparent, I am deep, deep, deep in post-production on the short film that I'm trying to wrap up right now. And I'm trying to get it all done by the end of the month. Now, I'm recording this on the 17th of February. Uh, this episode is probably going to come out a few weeks after that. So, you know, I'm speaking in the past to you right now. So, um, yeah, so I'm completely involved with post-production. I'm completely involved with uh, trying to get this project made, which comes with so many different things and it requires so much time. Um, and so I didn't spend a lot of time prepping this episode. I knew that I got along with him and uh, I knew that uh, we could chat and so when in cold. And so today's episode, you'll hear it evolve. You'll hear it sort of wind up and you'll see how it evolves into this conversation about intent. Now, what do I mean by intent? Why is it that someone tells you a story? Why is it that you wanna tell a story? When you read about something, why was it written, right? If you hear someone telling you something, where does that come from? What is their intent? What are their goals? What are they trying to do, right? Every exchange is done for selfish reasons. And I don't mean negative selfish reasons, it's just the truth of it. Someone comes and talks to you because they are curious and they wanna satisfy that curiosity. Someone may come and talk to you because they have something to sell and they want to sell something to you. Someone may come and talk to you because they want something that you have, right? It's the way a game works. It's the way humans work. That's the, the thing. So if you think about every interaction that you have, everything that you ingest from that perspective, selfishly, they're coming to me and delivering this to me. Why? Ask yourself why when you watch stuff. I think this is very important because a lot of what we use for tricks and techniques in, in the visual storytelling medium uh, and even in the podcast medium, uh, in the storytelling medium in general, we study as storytellers. How many times can I say storytellers, by the way? As storytellers, <laughs> there we go. We study all these tricks and techniques that subtly affect you emotionally. That's the move. I know 
that if I shoot this with the specific filter, it's gonna feel like a dream. I know that if I light this person from this angle, they're going to feel three times as attractive than they are in real life. I know that if I use this color in this frame, that is gonna make you hungry, right? So these are all these subtle effects that are manipulating us. And right now, as an audience, we are just fattened. We're bloated with dopamine. It's the truth of it. You hear me use this thing all the time. Talk about dopamine on the show all the time. We are, we are addicts. We are addicts to dopamine right now at such a massive level, right? I, it's affecting our brains. Our neural pathways are being broadened in those dopamine delivery system pathways because of how much of it we ingest, how much of it we need. There's a sense of depression that we have daily, multiple times per day, because we ingest so much of it. And then when we don't have it, Oh, life is kind of boring, right? How often do you have to pick up your phone in those quiet spots, right? Why is that? Because of our addiction to this. And so as we sort of force feed ourselves, our mainline, our fucking like bloated salted cheeseburger worth of entertainment consistently, you have to ask yourself, why is it being made? What is the intent? What is the storyteller's intent? And there's nothing better than being emotionally affected by something that you feel like is coming from an honest place, right? An honest situation, an honest life experience that an individual or a group of individuals had, and they want to teach you about it. They want to help you experience this thing. And maybe by experiencing it in a safe way, it'll help you with your regular life, or maybe Experiencing it in this way will make you look at what you're doing differently, right? Maybe introducing somebody in a specific way that influenced them will change the way you think of individuals, right? This is the power of this medium. But it always comes down to intent because here comes the cynical uh, Mike that's on the show all the time. There's a darker intent with a lot of the stuff that's made. There is an intent that is driven by income right? Now you start to fall down sort of this rabbit hole of why people make things. Why are they doing it? What is their goal for doing it? Is it just to make money? Do they have a warehouse full of things that they have to sell? Do they have um, some sort of alter, alternate intent to try to change the pathway of specific folks? Is this uh, a political intent? Like, what is it for? And I bring this up because a lot of all this content is put on the same platform. So we sort of treat it the same way subconsciously. You can be scrolling through a feed on a streaming service and see a bunch of like beautifully crafted, genuine, like intent based upon curiosity and human experience in a lineup with other stuff, other documentaries that are being financed by a corporation, being financed by individuals that are trying to change a narrative. And they're using these tools and they're using uh, this manipulation tactic to change their narrative. That's what they're doing, right? And these things are just sort of stacked up against each other. So when we watch this stuff, we consider it reality, right? We consider it honest. We consider it all the same intent because it's being curated in the same place, right? No, it's not really the case. And so as we dive into today's episode, um, I feel like <laughs> I 
is one of those episodes where I apologize to my guest because I, I pulled him down into a dark uh, hole with me, whether or not he wanted to go, <laughs> whether or not he wanted to go. But we ended up in a great place. Uh, I'm sitting down with Andrew Primavera. Um, he is an amazing producer, a director. He is uh, head of content over at MGX Creative, which is a production company and an ad agency out here in Los Angeles. Um, he's had years of experience in post-production as an editor. Uh, we talk about his path into the industry. We talk about his opinions on film school. We talk about uh, what he learned by uh, working his way up through post-production and how that affected him as a director. Uh, we talk about the uh, YouTube content creation world. He did a series, he directed a series called Cushing, sorry, Cooking with Marshmallow, the DJ Marshmallow. Uh, many of you young listeners out there know about this. Um, and uh, we talk about uh, integrating celebrities into that show and that whole process of it. So this is an interesting episode. It's a very, uh, it's not really a technical episode. It's, it just really gets into the nitty gritty behind content creation and career building. So if you're someone that is trying to become a director, if you're someone that's trying to get into this industry, um, this is a good episode for you. We're not going to give you a pathway. We're not going to give you tips and tricks on how to succeed in this business, but we're going to give you um, sort of like a little hand-holding, sort of pat on the back, uh, you know, uh, guidance into emotionally how to sort of process a lot of stuff that you're going to confront in this business and really make sure that you feel good about having a conscience and make sure that you feel okay about uh, being picky about who you work for and what it is that you do, especially if you're doing docs and, and uh, commercials, right? And uh, look, I get it. Not everybody's in a good place financially. Some folks, life throws fucking curveballs. Maybe you end up diagnosed with uh, an illness that requires uh, healthcare all of a sudden, an uh, extreme healthcare. Maybe you uh, suddenly had a, ch a kid, right? And maybe you have responsibilities that are thrown on your lap and you need to make money and you can't be... Um, you know, too picky about who you work for because you're in a, a place of desperation. I understand that. I've been there. We've all been there. Um, but try to get yourself beyond that point. Um, and I've done other episodes on this. Go back and listen to them. We talked about like, you know, one of the best things that you can do for yourself as a freelancer in this business is try work, claw your way to the point where you have at least five months worth of rent in front of you at all times. Just claw your way to that place so that you can make really honest uh, decisions about who you're going to work with for the right reasons and not out of desperation. You know what I mean? I know, I, I know you can't always do that, but there are ways to make that happen. You know, go back and listen to the other episodes. We give you a bunch of tips on that. Anyway, um, before I get into today's show, thank you everybody that's been following me on Instagram. I'm Mike Petschy and following the podcast and Love with the Process pod on Instagram. That is the place to go if you want to give me new ideas for guests on this show, which I take to heart. Um, that is a place to go if you want to give me feedback. If you listen to the, today's episode and you're like, Mike, you're completely full of shit. <laughs> you can send me a message on Instagram uh, and tell me that. And I, I most likely will read it. You know, it may get lost in the continuous onslaught, the ever 
uh, building tsunami of requests and DMs to watch 12 Kilometers. We just started to get big in Italy, <laughs> which is super cool. I'm excited about that. So I've been trying to keep up with those DMs while trying to finish this film, while trying to do this podcast, while trying to write this new feature, all this stuff going on at the same time. I just like, when anybody talks to me, like, what's life like? Well, I'm busy as fuck and I'm not always getting paid for it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, thank you everybody for the support. Uh, Instagram is a place to go. And if you want supplemental material while you're listening to this show, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I know that uh, it can be a little daunting when you look at how many episodes that we put out and you're like, what do I do? I just showed up and this is like 250 or whatever the fuck this episode's going to be. Um, do I go back to episode one? Well, you might want to, you know, I will say this. If you go back and listen to our series from episode one till now, you'll hear in my voice alone, the growth, uh, the trials and tribulations, the, uh, the valleys and the peaks that this business has created for me. Um, and I think you might find some comfort in just sort of hearing that progression. So if you go back to episode one and listen all the way through, I think it'd be interesting for you. But if not, you can go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and I've curated the episodes based upon subject material there. So if you just want to listen to cinematographer episodes, all up there. If you just want to listen to director episodes, all up there. If you want to listen to our chef's episodes, all up there. By the way, Mike, make a note. You got to get that. I just met a really great pitmaster. Get pitmaster on show, right? I'm well, dude, I'm overwhelmed. Um, but uh, yeah, inlovewiththeprocess.com is the place to go. All right, without further ado, you know the deal. Let's uh, pull our seats in close. Let's get together here, guys. And, uh, you know, ladies, do grab yourself a beer. Come on over, man. Have a seat. And uh, you know the deal. Crank up those noise-canceling headphones. Sit back and relax and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. buddy thanks for being on the show i'm good mike i'm good mike thanks for having me yeah man yeah man um we met briefly at the uh fuji event a couple like at least a month ago it's fucking t i feel like i'm in a delorean and i'm just speeding through time i can't even tell when it was that we hung out yeah yeah I, yeah about a month ago yeah. but uh could have been yesterday feels fresh <laughs> yeah man uh, and I couldn't wait to get you on the show. How, how's life? What are you up to these days? Uh, not too much, man. Um, you know, working on a few uh, feature documentaries um, and balancing some of the branded commercials on the side as well. So kind of left and right side of the brain at work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 
Keeping busy. That's the name of the game. How about you? Uh, you know, a bit of everything. Uh, and I, the, the funny thing is you bring up, so doing feature-length documentaries and branded content, I was doing that for quite some time. I used to do that back uh, in Boston on the East Coast, and we ran a production company and did all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's it's a fucking challenge uh, swapping your brain from me from like the commercial world into uh, you know the narrative doc world, isn't it? They may as well be two totally different mediums. I mean, it, the the way that you come about them, the approach, um, and just the way in which you can affect a project, like it, it, it couldn't be more different. But um, that's what kind of makes it fun, you know. Once you're tired of one, you get to jump right to the other, and um, definitely in, in in our case, it kind of feels like the two forms almost influence the other. Yeah, you know, you start seeing rules that you could break in the documentary world. Maybe we take some of those to scripted things you could do in the scripted world. Let's bring those to docs. So um, there's a nice synergy to it. I feel like it's gotten closer and closer than it used to be as, as forms. Yeah. 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 We found that when we were doing it back in the day, we would end up working on sort of the, I would, I always called them the our art projects, which ended up being sort of narrative and all that kind of stuff. And any of the tricks and techniques that we were learning there or that we got known for there would end up translating themselves back into the commercial world and back into uh, that kind of stuff, too. So I, I felt like not only was doing work um, on our personal projects, uh, you know, good for the future and hopeful for the future if we're going to sell something or if it becomes successful, but then uh, double fold, that success leads back into the commercial world because then you start to get known for specific techniques. Like we used to do a lot of mini doc work and all that stuff back when it started. And uh, back when people were changing the rules of how you can run an interview and what interview sessions look like, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you see it now all the time, especially on, on a lot of these true crime projects, like recreations may as well be feature films at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Um, yeah. 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 So it's, it's cool to blend the genres. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning with you, bud. Like why this business? How'd you get into this business? Yeah, I mean, um, if we're starting way, way at the beginning, if, if we're jumping uh, back into the DeLorean, as you said. Um, Jump on in, dude. There's a, there's a, there's a passenger seat. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when, I was, uh, when I was really young, I was, um, I was fascinated with, uh, with animation mm. for a while. Mm. Um, specifically, like I'd say, like Golden Age, like Walt Disney Company, um, you know, 30s, 40s, uh, into the early 50s. I mean, I mean, I grew up in like the '90s Renaissance, um, so it was definitely top of mind. Obviously, Pixar was doing um, their whole thing right at the at the beginning of the mid to late '90s. Yeah, um, and it just had a huge impression on me, and, and I loved the form. I loved the process. Um, I thought from a really young age, this is absolutely what I want to do. Um, and then by the time I was like an adolescent. I just realized I was terrible at drawing <laughs> and, and it was, it was kind of never really going to happen for me. Yeah. Um, but, but so many of the principles kind of lended themselves um, over to film and, and translated over to film. And, and so I kind of gravitated more towards, uh, towards live action, you know, went to film school, moved out to LA and uh, you know, never really looked back. Where are you from originally? 
Originally from Boston, but mainly grew up in Baltimore. Oh, see, like another Boston boy. <laughs> I know. I know. We got a we got a stranglehold on this on this industry. Transplants everywhere. <laughs> We're attracted to each other like bugs to a light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, look, it's nice. I I love going to uh, you know Angels games and and Lakers games out here, and it feeling like a home crowd. It, it definitely feels like I never left. Yeah, yeah. So what? Um, um, what was the animation that you were obsessed with? Do you remember what the first stuff that you were watching was? I mean, definitely the first the first uh, feature film I saw in theaters was Toy Story 2, which I want to say was like 98. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember being totally um, enthralled with it and, and kind of going back and, and um, looking at, you know, a lot of the 2D that had influenced it and obviously gotten it up to that point. Mm-hmm. I'd say my interest was mainly in, in 2D hand-drawn animation. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, like, e- even to this day, like, I hold a lot of those classic uh, Disney features as, like, I mean, honestly, some of the best films of their eras, like, you know, Pinocchio in, in you know, the late 30s, early 40s. Um, yeah, dude. They're just really challenging the form and, and breaking down walls. So, um I don't know. I, I'd probably say it was that whole catalog rather than one specific piece. Well, yeah, dude, I, I, I'm a little bit older than you, I think. So I used to love, uh, you know, old Chuck Jones cartoons, man. And so like, you'd watch mm-hmm. like the old Tom and Jerry cartoons and like you go back and watch, uh, I think you can find a lot of them on Disney plus. Now you go back and watch like the old Donald duck and, uh, all that stuff. It was amazing work. And it, you know, there was a whole, I mean, I'm not that far from Burbank animation right now. I sort of drive by that area and I'm like, Jesus, man, like the, all the really cool animated stuff that was born in this area um, really influenced me as a kid too. Like, uh, cause when I was super young, it was like Tom and Jerry, Donald duck, and then three stooges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, the stuff was a lot more violent back then. It was sort of centered around violence, which was fun. <laughs> Um, and it's funny to see how much of an effect that had on pop culture, especially the generation that came directly after that. You watch movies like Lethal Weapon, you watch movies mm-hmm. uh, that are just completely influenced by that sort of slapstick, sort of, uh, you know, violent humor <laughs> that came out of For effect. sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And, and I mean, even just like revisiting it as somebody, you know, like like when, when I'm watching those in, in the 90s, a lot of those shorts are now at this point, 50, 60 years old. It's crazy. And, and it, it, it's crazy how from that you pick up pop culture references mm-hmm. from that era. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, like I, I remember there was one specific short with Donald Duck where he like goes on like a, a big, like film studio back lot. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's like all the stars of the time are, are depicted like Looney Tunes did that all the time as well. So it's like, you know, I don't know. I feel like I was walking around as like the only kid in the, in the late nineties wanting to have a conversation about, you know, um, <laughs> these golden age references that obviously I had no connection with. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of, it was kind of informative in that way. And I don't know, it, I think that kind of helped open up the entry point to filmmaking. Yep. Um, Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for movies about movies, um, stories about the industry Um you know, I, I'm the first to criticize like the Academy when when they nominate one because it's like, man, we're we're really just self involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I have to admit, I I, I love seeing the uh, the form on the big screen. Yeah, dude, it's super cool, man. It's very cool. 
Um, so, all right. So then fast forward, right? So uh, when did you end up uh, directing your first piece? What was your first piece that you did? I mean, certainly I did some short films in, um, in, in uh, film school. Um, but really, I, I took a pretty big break uh, after that. I, I actually wanted to focus um, on post-production and editing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I saw a lot of my peers during film school ready to jump in head first um, and start doing immediately independent films, independent shorts. And um, not to say that that's not the right path at all, mm-hmm. but... I just felt like I really want to absorb and learn as much as I can. I really enjoyed editing. And I think the part that I enjoyed about it the most is, you know, every single week, every single job, I got to work pretty closely with a new director. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of get to like pick up their playbook a little bit. Um, and more importantly, the editing room is usually where they're the most brutally honest about the project. <laughs> so it's very, true. like you, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you're watching takes and it's like, oh man, I should have, I should have done this, should have done that. Um, and I feel like for me, I just felt like there was a wealth of information to be had there. So, yeah. um, you know, kind of went that track, um, started assistant editing, um, some feature documentaries, uh, for ESPN's 30 for 30 series, cool. worked with a lot of great folks there. Um, briefly worked at, a in a freelance capacity at, um, college humor, um, where they were turning out sketches like every other day, mm-hmm. kind of got to see the full machine there. Um, and eventually, uh, joined this production company, MGX creative, uh, founded by two folks that I went to school with, um, Carl Gill and Daniel Malkiar. Um, and with them, you know, I, I was kind of put in a position where I was able to start directing some of the projects that they were taking on. Um, and at that point I, I, I felt equipped to, because I kind of felt like I got a little bit of grad school through post-production. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's, <clears throat> it's an interesting way in. And I think that, um, a lot of folks don't realize, I think when you go to film school and everybody sort of walks into film school and I, I, I went to New York film Academy for a short run back when they first started. And I remember the first day, right? You have all these guys and girls sort of collecting around each other. Everybody sort of tries to figure out their names and they sort of walk around and they start to discuss what their dreams are. And you would find a collection of people. You'd have the the folks that are like, I am here to learn how to direct this movie that I've always had in my head. And you're like, okay, this guy's got a fucking solid vision. You have the people that are like, I want to learn the skills to see if uh, I can do this job. And then you have the people that are like, I kind of like movies, you know, and you yeah. ha- you have like this weird mix of folks. And as you go through the process of uh, learning in that in that arena, I think many people start to discover that their obsession with cinema falls on a very particular level. And I think that... Um, what film school does well for folks is it sort of helps you sort of sort through or sift through whatever sort of romantic idea you had of the business. And then it helps you sort of understand, Hey, maybe I, maybe I'm not ready to direct. Maybe I'm not going to come right out of school and start directing instantly. Uh, I'm fascinated with this other process. And um, so many of my friends that went into film school were like, Hey, we're going to come out and start directing stuff. But like, one of my partners uh, ended up becoming a trailer editor for the big trailer studios. Another one went on to be a producer. Another one went on to be a writer and, and run a, a company that is all about literature. 
Um, and so uh, it was it was interesting to see how that process sort of divided everybody and sent them on their own paths. And then eventually those guys come back around once they've had life experiences and once they've been through stuff to start to make pieces, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, something I didn't realize until I really got there was, you know, most film schools, at least the one I attended for sure, it starts to feel like a trade school, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and I think even by like junior year, you know, people are starting to, you know, work on the weekends and, and take jobs on sets, you know, shooting music videos, um, starting to bring in some income. And there's definitely a question of like, do I really need to stick around here? Like, I feel like I kind of got, you know, yeah. got my bearings. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think what, um, I felt certainly by the end of it. And, and I think this is just, I, I don't say that this is a, a failure of, of any of those institutions by any means. I think this is just something that you ultimately have to get out of the building and, and see in the world, like you said, life experiences. Yeah, I feel like everybody comes out and you know has an understanding of how to technically make something. You know, understands the process of it, understands how to do the process in a polished way, but the nuance of it um, and the distinguishment between making something polished and making something effective mm-hmm. and great. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is just something that I, I don't think can be taught in a classroom, you know? And, and I think nobody also walks into this, into those rooms with like the innate ability to do it. It, it just comes from learning and observation and honestly finding your voice. Yeah. Um, Cause I feel like early on we're, we're all kind of doing impressions <laughs> of our favorite filmmakers, right? Yes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, yeah, trying to pass it off as our own style, but it's like mm, you're, you're just kind of doing Fincher, right? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and and it it takes time to really settle into. No, this is this is my voice. This is my aesthetic, and and these are the kind of stories I want to tell. Yeah, yeah. And people, are, I get that question a lot from young folks. Like, how do you find your voice? How do you find that stuff? You actually have to go live a life, really. And like, if if you have those. If you have those skills, it's like being a cook. If you have the skills, if you know how to like heat up a pan, you know how to cook stuff, then go out and live your life and then practice those skills. And that way you're, you know, you're keeping sharp and you're learning technically how to put A plus B together to actually make a thing. And you're learning how to do that fast and efficiently. And you're learning the tricks and techniques to communicate an emotion with, uh, you know, all of our, you know, smoke and mirror stuff to an audience, but then you're also living your life. You're going out, you're, you're meeting a girl, you're getting, you're getting dumped by that guy, you know, like, uh, God forbid your parents die, something happens and you're, you're actually going through the process of living and feeling emotions. And those emotions are shifting you and changing you as a human. Um, and if you're smart, you're trying to take note of that stuff as a storyteller. And it's like, how did I feel when I was, you know, at the funeral of my father? Like, how did I feel? When, uh, you know, the person that was supposed to meet me never showed up, you know, how did I feel when, you know, we had our baby, you know, that, that is the stuff that they can't teach you in film school. That's the stuff that you can't get early on. That's, that's the shit that you put into the skills that you acquire, you know? hundred percent. And, and the best way to develop character, whether, you know, you're writing your own projects or, um, directing talent is, is just to meet as many people and observe the, their behaviors as much as possible. Cause to a certain extent, when you're coming out, like if you're writing a cop drama or you're writing, you know, a thriller, um, 
but you're 19 years old. You're kind of riding outside of your base, right? And you have very <laughs> limited experiences to to draw from, and so it all it all ends up just kind of being karaoke, right? Yeah. Of I'm basing this off of what I've seen on screen, and um, I agree. I think you just gotta, you know, kind of continue to file that stuff away. And a lot of times, it's not even conscious, like you said. It's just going through life, living through life, and and all of a sudden, when you approach a project and and read a script or um, you know read through a concept it just kind of starts to bubble up to the surface level subconsciously. Right. And we've talked in in depth about that, but what we haven't talked in depth about is like what you're doing in the meantime. Right. Yeah. Because there's a lot of folks out there that are like, okay, well uh, I want to have a career at this. I need to start making money at this. Um, So what do, what do I do? And, and, you know, many of my friends, I did this, you end up uh, trying to, form a production company or, or form some sort of income. You become uh, a freelancer. You curve heavily into something that you're curious about. For years, I was a cinematographer, so I was getting paid to do that. Um, and you went off and uh, worked in the post-production houses, which is incredibly smart because not only are you getting uh, the information from all those directors, but you're also seeing how the pieces come together and you're seeing the how the pieces don't come together, which is like super important because then when you're on set somewhere later in life, you're like, no, 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 guys, no, the sound is fucking important. <laughs> like, I, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, no, 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 my experience is that we need to get coverage here. I know that this is going to be a pain in our ass. Like, that's invaluable experience being in the editorial department. 100%, 100%. And I, and I think it, it, you know, for me, I think the biggest skill that I, I didn't even count on, but but definitely something that I, I certainly credit my time in, in editorial with is, you know, inevitably on any day, maybe not every day, but most days you're going to walk in with a really idealistic shot list, yeah, some really idealistic coverage. And when I'm building that, I'm, I'm never, I mean, certainly I'm thinking let's prioritize coverage, but I'm not coming in as an editor. I'm coming in as a director. When your first AD comes over and says, Hey, listen, like we, I don't know if we're going to make it. Like we got to cut a few things that's when I feel like the editorial experience has been the most helpful is being able to say, I can combine this into a two shot. I can't, you know, sacrifice this. And and you can really start to look at the essentials of a scene um, and visualize in your head, like what kind of coverage can either be combined um, or, or just outwardly removed. Yeah. So um, yeah, that, that, that's definitely been the most, the most helpful part um, that I've taken from it for sure. Yeah. And then looking through your stuff, it looks like you were doing a lot when you when you were working with this uh, production company, uh, what MGX. It looks like you guys were doing a lot with musicians and music work. Um, you know, we had been really fortunate that um, we had uh, met Marshmallow's team and got to collaborate with them on you know what his music videos were going to look like long term. And um, you know, if you watch those music videos, they are ultimately a little bit more of, of short films and, and a narrative about that character. Since he doesn't speak, since he doesn't have a voice, um, he's sort of like a unanimous avatar for anyone and everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, those videos are about overcoming bullying um, and, you know, going through your first breakup and, um, you know, relating with your parents and, and issues that are kind of universal. Um and definitely a lot of credit to um, specifically Daniel Malikyar and, and Karm Gill, the founders of MGX, who really facilitated that relationship and 
first put together what that series looks like. But yeah, in essence, we were able to kind of work with him. And, and as he, you know, continued to, to rise and get more and more opportunities, we kind of became um, the go-to production partners there. Um, and that opened up doors to other artists. And, and that's what's kind of fun about working with an artist is you get to follow their career path. You yeah, know, yeah. if you work with an, an actor on a short film and their next film, you know, they get cast in is with, you know, who knows, like Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, you're not necessarily no. moving up with them, right? No, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you can catch up with them, you know, eventually and, and rekindle that relationship. But with an artist, you know, as they continue to get bigger, you get to grow with them. And, and so I definitely think there's, there's a lot of value in, in creating those kind of relationships. And yeah. even though they're two different mediums, you know, art respects art. Well, yeah. And the great thing, because that's what we did with our production company, because we had access and we were working with some pretty big bands. And if if you can find a great working relationship specifically with the artist um, and you're able to work your way through, uh, you know, the gatekeepers that are normally between an artist and a production company. Um, and if you can have that relationship, that longstanding relationship does great things. Like, I, I mean, I've been shooting for Czarface for years and then, you know, Killswitch Engage before that. Like, you end up uh, uh, having access to their huge fan base. And that fan base becomes, uh, you know, a fan base for your work, which, you know, a lot of those fans have jumped ship from my work that I've done back then. And they follow my short films. They follow all my stuff these days. There's a lot of you listening right now that have been fans of mine since the early days of music videos. Um, and it's a, it's a great place. I completely agree with you. It's a great place to really get into this business because it's kind of stress-free to a certain extent. Sure, you still have to make your deadlines, but uh, at the end of the day, you just have to make the artist look good. You know, so right. like you're, you're not really stuck on narrative. You're not really stuck on, on, on storytelling. Like uh, I found that when we were doing music videos, um, it was like right after the big boom at the late eighties and nineties. And so there was this whole period of time where many of these artists were wanting to make short films. <laughs> and so like you were coming out and you're getting all the same briefs from them where it's like, okay, so the uh, there's this guy who came back from the war and his wife is upset yeah. that he's here. And you're like, fuck, here comes another one of those briefs again. Um, but you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I say this all the time to the folks that I do music video stuff with these days, it really comes down to the song. And if the song is fucking killer, and as long as your visuals aren't trash, if the song is killer, then you're going to be successful. And so like, if you are looking for an act to go and team up with, I think the key element is to really enjoy the music and really chase down those artists that you fucking love and that you think the music's great. And honestly, that other people love um, because I've done amazing music videos for shit songs <laughs> and they, they don't go anywhere. And then I've done half-assed music videos for amazing songs and then I get all the credit for it. So be, be cautious when you're picking who you're going to work with, I guess was that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and something I'd say as well is like, you know, respect the form, you know, ultimately if you're being brought on to enhance the track, right. Yes. And, and give a visual to it. I think there's a lot of nobility and there's a lot of room to tell stories in music videos for sure. Sure. I think the, the line though, that we, we would always talk about internally is 
you can't hijack it and have it be a short film that happens to have the track underneath. Right. And, and kind of what I mean by that is, you know, ultimately if this is an artist you want to work with and, and this is a project that you want to be effective, most people are going to discover these music videos by going on YouTube and wanting to actually listen to the song, maybe yeah. put it on at a party. Right. Yeah. And if you start the music video off with 30 seconds of, you know, a narrative short film before it kicks in. Yeah. That might affect how it does for the artist. And that might affect, you know, the next shot that you get um, and, and your relationship with them. And, and so it's, it's kind of a balance of, you know, here's the sandbox work within the guardrails that are kind of naturally put up. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't do something great. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, tell a great story or, or challenge the form or, or push yourself, you know, um, even if it just is a, a, a performance based video, um, but mm -hmm. definitely make sure that you're not trying to make it anything, anything it's not either, because at that point, nobody's winning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, dude. And I think that it's just a mental outlook when you get started for it. Uh, you're not a, you're not going into making a music video as a director, uh, as a film director, you're going in to do a video to help support that, that artist and that act and that music. So don't leverage. There's so many uh, young filmmakers that I've heard that are like, look, I'm going to do this music video. I'm going to prove that I can make a movie with this music video. And it's like, well, look, twofold. One, you may uh, effectively uh, ruin that music video's chances because, like you said, you do some long intro, you do some really bad narrative. Uh, two, you, you're ultimately what you're supposed to be doing is, um, you know, building a presence for that artist, for that person that it ultimately is paying you, ultimately needs to sell concert tickets, ultimately needs at one point to sell CDs. No longer is that the case these days. But you're supposed to be building a brand for that person, right? And then the the big kick in the balls <laughs> is that you do these music videos uh, and you're like, I'm going to prove that I could shoot a film scene or I could prove that I'm going to shoot a short film or make a feature with this music video. And then you go into an executive's office that make movies and they don't give a fuck. They, they don't care about right. music videos. So like you're hijacking the medium um, with a, an idea of doing something that isn't even going to work out for you. So be smart when you start, I think, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And listen, I don't think it's, it's anywhere where, where people want to finish their career. Right. And, and even now, you know, it, 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 the proportions have changed of how much of our, of our business and our projects and our slate really are music video based. Yeah. But I think that in terms of developing your craft and, and sharpening your skills and, um, you know, honestly, just being able to challenge yourself, I think prompts like that help. I think music videos help. I think commercials help. Yeah. And, you know, so few people come out ready to, to put together their magnum opus. Um, certainly some do. I'm, I'm definitely not going to discount that. I can only speak to my own journey. I definitely was not ready and, and, you know, felt like, Hey, here's a great area where I can get a lot of reps early. Um, and, you know, always keep, you know, my eye on whatever the next thing's going to be. Um, but essentially you're getting, you're getting paid to, to continue to develop yourself as a filmmaker. Um, and that to me is, is invaluable, especially from like a work-life balance perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, dude. And my, my journey with that was that I got lost at that game, I think a little too long. So we, mm -hmm. we ended up 
forming this production company and then the production company had to fuel itself, right? You got to fuel the employees, you got to fuel all those folks. And then um, I, I think I got lost in that game too much. And I think I should have probably got out of that game five years earlier than I did because it, it started to become a grind for me. And I, I think that if you are doing this stuff, um, the big fear for a lot of folks is, can I do a feature film? Can I do the thing that my dreams are hooked on? And uh, just try to be aware as you're going through the process of doing this and having a fucking great time doing this, are you still also putting the time in to develop your dream and push for your dream? And uh, even though you are you know, learning a lot of the skills that you need, whether it's editing or, or, or how to deliver, right? How to finish a project, creating a reputation on, on delivery, which is important. Um, but, uh, you know, have you hit a point where maybe it's time to go to the next level? So it, just be cautious when you get into this game. If you get into doing music videos and you get into this stuff as a way to learn, okay, spend, you know, like five to six years playing that game. But also don't lose sight. Like on weekends, be writing your scripts. And, uh, you know, still go off and do two or three short films a year. And if you find yourself in a position where you don't have time to do those things anymore, ask yourself, am I in the right position at that point? Because so many people I know get lost in doing this stuff. And the next thing you know, they're in their four, late 40s, early 50s. And they're like, I always wanted to make a fucking feature and I never did, you know? Right, right. Completely agree. Completely agree. It's, it's, it's always a stepping stone unless that's your passion. And if that's your passion, that's, that's totally fine. But if, if you have bigger aspirations, I, I, I agree. Start to, you know, look for the value you can get out of it, get yep. that value, you know, develop yourself and then start to look at, you know, the next steps you can make. And look, not, not every path is linear either. You know, it might be continuing to do music videos while you're also, mm-hmm. you know, shooting features on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but in everything you do, kind of look for what you're looking to, to get out of it. I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. And just don't get I, – I guess my point was that oftentimes – and maybe it's – you know, here's me sort of dissolving. Maybe it's uh, my generation, but, like, I come from a generation which is, like, you put your head down, you work real hard. And yeah. if you put your head down for too long and you don't look up for error, then the next thing you know, you're like, fuck, it's been so long that I've just been cranking out these things and you end up start starting to find a formula, especially if you're working in the commercial world and if you're working for clients, because clients end up ultimately hiring you for a style that you developed years prior. And so they run you, they'll run you through that style until it dries out. And so if you poke your head up after doing, you know, you know, 50 music videos, like uh, I'm friends with Dale Rage and he's done, he's credited himself for shooting I can't remember the actual number, but it's like over 1,500 music videos. You know, it's like he pokes his head up after that and he's like, what the fuck have I been doing? And you go, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. just be cautious, guys, when you're playing this game. If, if ultimately uh, you want to be making feature films, uh, remember, you've got to be building those skills at the same time. And just to be clear, I'm not shitting on either business. I think that there are amazing directors that have made careers and that are well-known. Look at Mark Romanek, well-known for being like the ultimate music video director. His stuff has been inducted into like art museums and uh, huge institutions. Like he's amazing for that. He's done one or two features. Um, but uh, we're also in a weird world right now where I don't know if you can have a full long-standing career 
that you can raise kids with and, you know, pay insurance and everything just doing music videos these days. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I, I'd probably agree. I guess unless you're, uh, unless you're doing euphoria, which is essentially an HBO fueled, uh, hour of music videos every single <laughs> Sunday. Um, but, but, you know, I think that's a perfect example, right. Of, of, you know, somebody that, uh, you know, cut their teeth with that and, and was kind of able to channel it into their aesthetic and, and, um, you know, obviously that show is, has been successful because of the value that, that music videos play a role in it. So it's very um, true. It's very true. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's all situational, but, but, Definitely, regardless of what you're doing, looking around, taking stock in, am I still being challenged? Am I still growing? Um, am I still getting closer to where I want to be as a filmmaker? Um, that's important, you know, and, and that could even be working on features. Are you working on the kind of features you want to work on? Are you exactly. working on the types of projects, the genres that you want? So um, it's it's always a it's always a good exercise, regardless what you're what you're working on. Yeah, man. And I think it's important that we talk about that stuff because there is, we, we talk about this on the show all the time. There's no set formula for how this business works. And so when you get started, it can be feel incredibly daunting. I mean, even now I've been doing this for like 20 something years, it still feels daunting because the, the ground is constantly shifting underneath you. And so it's hard to find a system and a formula that works and I think when, at least from my experience, when we started to form a production company, we were trying to build a formula and a foundation that was stable. So that way we felt like we can like hold some ground, you know what I mean? Make some income. And now it's like, okay, cool. I can make some income. I can actually pay for my rent. Oh, now I can actually pay to get a new vehicle. Oh shit. Now I can actually pay to get healthcare. Okay. That's cool. Now I can start to pay employees. Oh, that's really interesting. And now we're building a sense of uh, gravity based upon that production company, but then that production company as an entity is existing on a world of shifting plates. And you're like, fuck, like, how? so I, I think, I just think it's important to remember that how unstable this business can be. And it's important that you're always poking your head out of the walls that you put around yourself for safety to make sure that you're headed in the right direction, because you don't want to hit a midlife crisis where, you're suddenly looking around going like, what the fuck were we doing? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so what, um, so you started working with these guys. I, I noticed that you were doing, uh, you were directing that cooking with marshmallow series, right? Yeah. And that was really, um, I, I would say where, where I really got my start directorially after, after school, um, which was an, an awesome place to, to, um, to really start because it was, something that we were shooting every single month. It started off small footprint, just us and the crew. Um, and obviously, you know, the talent as well. Um, and the purpose was to do these, you know, under three minute recipe tutorials, but to have them be scripted and to do bits in them. And with Marshmallow being a silent character, it was a lot of physical comedy and, and gags um, that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in a cooking video. Um, <laughs> and eventually, you know, with, with, with his profile, those, those episodes really started to take off and, and really started to get some great viewership. And um, eventually we started like booking talent on it. And so really quickly, like within a matter of months, it goes from, you know, us directing, um, you know, just our, our, our lead talent to, 
Zach Efron is coming on the show today, you know, and, and Paul Abdul's coming on. And it was, it was a really wild experience because I feel like it kind of accelerated, um, you know, being able to specifically sharpen those skills of directing different types of talent. And then something I was definitely not used to was directing talent that has a persona, yeah, you know, yeah, and, and making sure that you're, you're kind of keeping that persona in mind. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it was really great because it was, you know, just regular reps of, of writing, directing. Um, and it was just a really fun collaborative environment between us, the artists, their camp and, and everybody on our crew. It's time to take a moment, and I want to talk about the people, uh, the men and women that sponsor this show. And it's ironic, as we sort of go through this episode and I talk about advertising and the power of advertising, that I'm also doing advertising on the show. There you go. Like, I talk about it uh, in detail. I don't know if we've got there yet, but yes, you, you have to make these partnerships in order to do your work. It's just the world that we live in. And for me, it's very important that I team up with companies that I love that I respect, that make tools that I use. So like if I'm telling you about stuff, it's stuff that I've used or will use or want to use and am I, I'm, I'm excited about, all right? And I've got new sponsor today, really new sponsor that does some really cool stuff. So don't go anywhere and you'll hear about it. Um, so first up, friends over at Puget Systems. If you're in the market for a new computer, get a PC. I don't know how else to say it, get a PC, it's going to change your life. They're affordable. Um, they're upgradable. Uh, when you're putting together PCs, you're working with competitive hardware out there. It isn't just one place making hardware and listing that hardware at a certain price bracket. Uh, there's nothing worse. There are a bunch of different companies out there that either make uh, uh, storage cards that have cornered the marketplace. And you just sort of look out there and you go, Jesus Christ, how is this compact flash card that was made like 10 years ago still this expensive? It's because they cornered the market of it. And you want to be in an open marketplace because it makes things uh, more affordable for us as consumers. And PCs is the place to go for that. Now, maybe you're someone that doesn't have the actual technical skills to build a PC. I don't blame you. There's a lot to know, right? Is this fucking... Uh, uh, motherboard going to work with this chipset? Is this motherboard going to work with this external card that I got to put in here? Like there are so many different questions and the only way that you can even figure out whether or not it works is you got to order up a bunch of parts and test it and run it through its tests. I didn't want to do that. I had a post-production company and I didn't want to be the guy running tech support for all the computers. So I found this company called Puget Systems. They are a smaller company, family owned, family run uh, on the West Coast. And uh, they make PCs, and they make powerful PCs. These guys are PC culture, so they believe in uh, you know developing a community. Uh, they are constantly benchmark testing all of their hardware. They are testing it with new software upgrades with, that are consistently, you know, driving us insane. If you're a video editor, you know, suddenly there's a fucking Adobe update, and if you don't shut off those auto updates, that update may just render your timeline useless on you. That's happened in the past, right? And who do you go to for 
as a resource, right? You try to contact one of the larger companies and it's like you end up on a, some sort of queue. You're talking to a bot in a text and that bot is like, hi, I am an individual. And you're like, no, you're not. You're a fucking robot. I want to talk to a person. I want to talk to someone that has uh, understands who I am and where I come from. Puget Systems is the place to go for that. I love these guys. Uh, not only do they build powerful PCs, they they want to know the type of work you do. They support art. They support the artists. Um, so if you're a video out there, video out there, if you're a video editor out there and you want to use the same PC that I have, I've got a monster Puget Systems that enables me to run 6K multiple time, multiple sequences in a timeline, multiple video tracks in a timeline rather, real time without any lag or uh, playback issues. Uh, Puget Systems is the place to go for that. So go to PugetSystems.com and check them out. Supporting the show, if you can't, if you haven't already guessed, our friends at Fujifilm. Today's episode is presented by Fujifilm um, because I met today's guest at a Fujifilm event. Um, and uh, Victor from Fujifilm was like, you got to get him on the show. And I was like, yes, I will. Um, so uh, Fujifilm, they create some of the best cameras on the market right now, affordable cameras on the market, cameras that are known for their color profile, beautiful color renditions on their still cameras and their video cameras. Um, and Gene and I are using two different types of Fujifilm cameras right now. She's using the GFX 100, which is a large format still camera. Uh, also does some video stuff. Um, but, uh, and as the future progresses, I think you're gonna see some interesting stuff from the GFX series. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that yet. Um, but uh, it's kind of a game changer for the medium format, especially for photography. Because prior to that, uh, you, you were using like a Hasselblad, um, you're using uh, Mamiya, you're using these other cameras that have lenses that are the low f-stop of a four, right? Which requires more light than a lot of those old film uh, format ones uh, require you to be shooting at like 200, 400 ASA, which runs requires a lot of light. And then if you're shooting a subject that's not gonna be standing still, you wanna be higher than 60 shutter speed. So you're usually running at like 100, 125, which requires more light. So in the past, when you're shooting medium format, you're usually using strobe units with it because those strobe units uh, will be able to give you the light output on standard uh, 20 amp circuits, right? No one really understands that. So when you're trying to get a light output to get that level of exposure, if you're using constant light, you're using the equivalent of like a 20K, right? An 18K. And those lights themselves require uh, more than a full circuit on your house. Most circuits on a normal house, most of them are like 15 or 20 amps. And so when uh, you have to use larger lights, you have to do what they call a tie-in, right? So what that means on a residential house is that you have to hire an electrician that goes down to the box in the basement and actually ties into the main power that's coming in to the house, creating a larger circuit, right? A larger power source. Um, it's a very dangerous thing to do. Um, and it's something that when I started in this business, we had to do a lot of. You're either doing a tie-in or you're renting a generator, a large generator, which means that you have to rent a larger crew and it becomes a money thing. So with a lot of the advancements in lights, the advancements with LED lights, 
um, you don't need to do that. And a lot of these lights that are constant lights are just built for film only, right? So the output on them is fantastic if you're running at an 800 ASA, which most of these digital cameras are rated at. If you're running it uh, on lenses that uh, are super speeds, so they're like a 1.8, a 2.3, right? That's super easy. And then the shutter speed on those cameras is usually about 148th. So using a um, LED tube light is plenty. But if you're someone that is also showing up to that set as a still photographer and having to shoot photographs, you find out quickly, if you're shooting medium format, that there's not enough light. There's barely any light. You're not going to get an exposure because of that. And so in the past, when we had to do that, we would have to show up and try to do strobes at the same time. And you could never match the lighting with the strobes that were done on the set, right? So it would have to look a little different. And most of the time, you'd have to do it quickly because you're holding up the actual shoot-shoot. And so in that process, you're like doing it fast and kind of lame, you know? Um, but what uh, Gina and I did is we did the hunt. We wanted to find a, a medium format camera that had great high SO features um, and uh, was digital, obviously, and that could shoot with the different lenses that we want, medium format lenses. Um, and Fuji was the place that we found it, Fujifilm. So the GFX100S is what Gina's been shooting all of her stuff with lately. So if you've seen the stills for the B. Miller stuff, if you've seen the stills um, for any of the campaigns that she's doing, it's all been Fujifilm. Um, and this leads me to our new sponsor on the show. I'm very excited to have the people from Photo Deox sponsoring us. And here's what Photo Deox does. They create the lens adapters that will take uh, older lenses, other camera lenses, and transfer them to specific camera bodies. Why is this important? Well, prior to us being Fujifilm photographers, we have a lot of really cool multiple year collected glass from other companies like Nikon. We've got Canon glass. We've got Zeiss lenses. We've got all sorts of different lenses, right? And I don't want to have to go buy all new lenses when I buy a new camera body because I, I've fallen in love with these lenses. I've got some Sigmas. I've got a Sigma 24 millimeter that's a macro that I fucking love, but it's got a Nikon back on it, right? And I wish that I could put that lens on my Fuji. That's how I found PhotoDeox. These people make all sorts of lens adapters and I love them for it. And they don't just make like chintzy lens adapters. Some of these lens adapters come built with ND in them which is amazing. Like you have variable ND built into the lens adapter itself. So that way when you're outside, you can be NDing down that lens so that you can still be shooting wide open at like a 2.8 and getting that shallow depth of field. It's insane, dude. If you guys haven't heard of these guys yet, Photo Deox right now is the place to go. Um, if you go to photodeoxpro.com, check out all their stuff. They sent me some uh, stuff here. Let me see. Photodeox has been continuously crafting new products to meet the demands of the changing world of media, fine art, content creation since 2004. I didn't know that. Known for providing a wide 
range of high quality and affordable pro lens mount adapters, PhotoDiox also offers an extensive selection of LED lights that fit any budget. Did not know that, that's awesome. Best-selling PhotoDiox products, my God, I'm gonna get that, PhotoDiox products include Fusion autofocus adapters, fucking cool, as well as ND throttle adapters, built-in variable ND filters, and DLX stretch adapters with micro-focus functionality. I'm telling you right now, it's, it's if you get an adapter like this, you're suddenly going to be able to change uh, these old-school lenses that filter light the way you want and uh, turn them into macro lenses. Uh, you're going to be able to turn them into shift-tilt lenses. There are so many choices. Unlock your image creativity with Photo Deox gear. Check them out at Photo D-I-O-X. That's F-O-T-O. D-I-O-X pro.com as well on, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, uh, where they post new content daily. Um, I can't say enough great stuff. So we just tested because they sent us a whole bunch of adapters. So we just got, because we're running two different Fuji units, right? We have the uh, GFX 100S and then we have the uh, XH. I always fuck this up. Do I have it here in front of me? Hold on a second. See, this is your boy. <laughs> Hold on, Fujifilm. I want to get the number right. I love this. It's We have one of their X-Series cameras, which we absolutely love. And it is, I want to get the number right. It's the X-H2S. I have so much trouble remembering that. It's the X-H2S. Uh, what I love about that camera is that it shoots ProRes, it shoots uh, 4K internally. Uh, great rig. I just got for this camera, I'm fucking excited about it. I just got for this camera a PL mount adapter. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean? That means that I can go to my boys at Boca, right? Boca Rentals, who's another sponsor of the show, and I can go in there and go, guys, can you give me some of those sweet Hawk anamorphic PL mounted lens? I'm going to put it on my Fujifilm. <laughs> and that becomes a super small second unit camera right so maybe you're doing a shoot you're running a large airy camera for the for the main unit and you need a second unit camera so you're like boom here we go or i just did some posts on my instagram account i don't know if you guys noticed them or not but i was showing you how i shoot inserts so i'll be in the edit room and i'll go fuck i should have got an insert of this thing i should have got an insert of that thing um so i'll just recreate a tiny version of that set in the edit room with me and I'll shoot those inserts. This is the perfect camera for that. I have my little Fujifilm. I grab it out of my soft bag that I have. I have my little PL mounts. If I want, I can go get the actual lens for it. Um, I can put on a PL mount lens anamorphic, or I can crop and put on one of my uh, Sigma macros. Um, and I have all these really cool macro extenders. So those of you who have always asked, like, how did you get that super tight macro stuff for 12 cam? I've got this extender kit. All that stuff can be mounted to my Fujifilm because I have all the adapters from Photo Deox. It's a fucking game changer. So if you're a shooter out there and you're listening to this episode, definitely go check them out because it's going to change everything. And as I mentioned, um, Make sure you create a solid bond with your local rental company. Where do you get your camera gear from? 
Are you someone that is like chasing trends and you're trying to buy the most expensive camera gear on the market? There's no way you can afford that and buy all these lenses. Glass is so expensive. And then you have clients that are looking for vintage glass, looking for anamorphic sometimes. Sometimes they're looking for sphericals, right? Where do you go for your stuff? If you're here in Los Angeles, you should be going to Boca Rentals. Boca Rentals is uh, a newer rental company. They're not one of the older dinosaur sort of rental units that have their methods and their processes, right? And like, if you're not Scorsese and Scorsese shows up, he gets all the good gear and you get whatever's left in the shop. Boca is, their mission is to provide services to the next generation of filmmakers. They want to meet all the young cinematographers. They want to meet all the young directors. They want to form relationships with you guys. Um, go to BocaRentals.com. Look at their inventory. Their inventory alone is insane. They carry all the lenses that are used to shoot all your favorite shows on Netflix. Guaranteed. I'm excited to have this PL mount adapter because I'm just going to take my Fujifilm into Boca uh, Rentals, uh, hopefully next week, and just be like, can I just grab some lenses off the shelf? I want to see how it interacts with this Fujifilm. That's the benefit of having a great relationship with a rental house. I can't say enough great things about them. And I don't need this ad read to be any longer because I think it speaks for itself. If you're in Los Angeles and you need a rental company, you're looking for a great rental company, look at Boca Rentals. Go to BocaRentals.com. Also follow them on uh, Instagram as well. They do a bunch of great posts that show, like, for instance, what lens was used to shoot specific scenes. And I'm in talks with them right now. They just opened up a brand new facility in Las Vegas, right? I think they're one of the few rental houses in Las Vegas right now, which is crazy. Um, and we're in talks about doing contests and giveaways. So it is coming as we push into this year. You're going to hear more from them. Um, so BocaRentals.com, place to go. All right, how's that? Ad reads in the can. Let's get back to it with Andrew. Yeah, and that I think, I mean, I've been feeling this with this show, with the podcast. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you're forming relationships with the actual people that make the industry run, which is like agents and management, PR folks. And so like if you are, you know, agreeing to let somebody come on the show and then you're handling them correctly and you're, and you're you know, like you were saying, paying attention to what their brand is and what their persona is and not really disrupting that brand then you start to like create a really good reputation with their reps and those reps start to trust you. And so even if that means you get to go back to those folks and say, Hey, who else do you have on your roster? Or it's like later on, you're trying to work with somebody and 
that person's rep is having, you know, a cheeseburger with the other rep and they go, oh, you know, uh, Andrew, right, right. He's a good dude. You know, he did a good job yeah. on this other thing. And that, you'd be surprised at how important that stuff is in the trajectory of your career. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's cool stuff, dude. That's that's why I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, working with celebrities kind of changes the game. There's so many people out there that when YouTube was kicking at its at its peak, it was just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people hanging out, a bunch of dudes hanging out, going like, "Hey, let's make a TV show in our in our backyard," and you know, they got massive with it. But it was just them and their buddies fucking around. I think once you start integrating in, you know, celebrities, that's a whole other fucking game. Because now you're behind the scenes doing a lot of hard work. And oftentimes you have to hire somebody to be able to sort of manage that kind of work, um, which is ultimately managing the reps <laughs> right. for, for the people that you're getting on screen, you know? Right. But, but I think it was, it was a great, uh, it was a great learning lesson for sure. Um, and, and I'd seen this a few other places as well. I, I definitely think when I was working at college humor, I, I felt this as well. Yeah, of, of course. You know, the, the medium and the format could look like one thing. And so I think, you know, people might be quick to even now to dismiss, you know, well, you know, if it's, if it's for YouTube, like what does that speak to, you know, the production quality or like the doors that that could open up the longevity that it could have. Um, I mean, ultimately that cooking show ended up going a hundred episodes um, with multiple directors over, over its entire run. And um, I think I would have never guessed that, when, when it first started. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that had little to do with the actual, you know, the potential of the show. It was more me getting caught up in like, well, you know, it, it, it's for YouTube. So how long could it, could it really run? And I think with a lot of, um, the projects that we take on now, you know, whether it's, um, it's distribution is, is online or, you know, it's distribution is ultimately to, to sell to a buyer. Um, I think it, 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 taught me a lot about questioning what you might think the ceiling of a form might be or yeah. the boundaries of a form might be. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, definitely in, in the commercial space, we, we really try to look at like advertisements as how can we do this without it feeling like an ad. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a, a lot of that school of thought came from kind of seeing how that, that show developed, um, beyond, you know, maybe what we initially imagined. Yeah, because, you know, I think there was a period of time where folks were just sort of, you know, look, there was a there was a point in time in our history where there was like two or three networks on a, on a television box that you turned a dial, you know what I mean? So, and they were the giants for, for content creation and content release. And then as, you know, the cable networks came in, suddenly you had 99 channels at one point that had all this sort of stuff. But th it always felt like to get anything on TV, to get anything out to the masses, there was a whole process that you had to go through the vetting process to even get to that point. Like, am I good enough? Right. Is my work good enough? Is the ideas good enough? These things have to go through all these different approval processes, often many of them bullshit and often many of them sort of gatekeepy, you know, uh, nepotism. But, um, I think when YouTube came out, it was completely downplayed. We felt this with music videos, right? Because, you know, we were still doing music videos at the back end of, of MTV. And so luckily we had some stuff. See how I even said that? Luckily I had some stuff on MTV, right? 
because there hit this point where the labels, even themselves, were just like, well, this is for the fucking internet. So we're not going right. to give you an MTV budget for this. It's just going to be for the fucking internet. And so I think the internet was downplayed a lot. And if you want to get real nerdy about it, I think it was downplayed for a few reasons. One, you know, now these companies didn't have to deal with unions. <laughs> now these companies didn't have yeah. to deal with the contracts that they had for television if they downplayed it as much as they did. Then they could also downplay it so that they wouldn't have to pay us as much as we would get paid for that stuff. But the truth of it is, is that YouTube became a distribution outlet, a massive distribution outlet. And so when you're doing music videos for these artists on YouTube, it's direct marketing to subscribed fans prior to that. On MTV, right. you would have to be tuned in late at night for Headbangers Ball to maybe catch the music video and go through the process of seeing it. Now, when the stuff comes out, your phone goes, hey, asshole, uh, check this out instantly. And so um, I think that a lot of folks were surprised when they started to do series and stuff on YouTube because I think as a culture, we were just sort of trying to get over the fact that it was being downplayed as much as it was. And I, I think... If you want to be very sort of cynical about it, I think the, the larger networks knew. And that's why they were trying to downplay it as, as hard as they were, because I, you can't go wrong with a delivery service that just immediately, immediately feeds your audience, you know? Totally. And and, and I think just even for, for the creators themselves, for, for filmmakers, for artists, like the... I, th I think the biggest impact has just been the ability to really um zag away from you know conventional like broadcast specs in terms of format you know yes, what i mean yes. like I, I i think that you know streaming probably gets the credit for it you know of oh well now you can you know instead of doing a feature you could do you know a 10 episode series and they one can be 45 minutes but if it's a longer story it can be like an hour and a half i think a lot of that really starts more online maybe it gets credit for yes um I agree. Because, because you have you know you have all these uh you, you don't have to work around any ad breaks you don't have to work around um you know it has to be exactly 22 minutes you know we have to fill um a certain scene here you know we have to do a a bottle episode because we need to hit a certain network order you know mm -hmm. even though we don't really have you know a 22 episode or yeah 22 episode season arc yeah you know and and i think that that just slowly and subconsciously started to affect the way that people wrote stories and um streaming really just took it the the extra distance where you know now if you go on any of these services like you'll probably be hard pressed to find something that's exactly 22 minutes you know it's it's true it's funny how that's not really funny it's, it's interesting how uh you know really money shapes this format right because when you when you're thinking about uh, television networks, it is about ad time, right? It's about advertising time. It's about uh, putting things on the air live, how much time you have within 24 hours to do it, and then sort of calculating it down to the minute of like how long these pieces need to be in order to run, how long an ad needs to be in order to run. So everything's sort of calculated to the moment for that 24-hour cycle of airtime that you can put things up on there. That makes a lot of sense. And then like you said, we break the rules when you start with YouTube, right? And so then uh, you're able to release whatever you want. But you're now seeing that sort of rotate again within YouTube because if you're going to uh, hit the peak for the algorithm now, 
you have to have things that are a certain length and you have to be posting multiple things during that week that sort of hit that certain length in order for your algorithm even to show it to your fucking fans that are subscribing to you, which is fascinating. So it's, it's always interesting how our art as storytellers is completely shaped by the money that's behind it, you know? 100%, 100%. It's wild, man. It's a wild thing to see. Because uh, I do you like I don't know if you know much about that stuff, but uh, it's like anytime you log on to YouTube, especially in our business, where it's like, oh, I can't remember how to draw a mask in uh, <laughs> in Resolve, right? And so you're sitting here, the clients over your shoulder, you're like, hold on a second, I just got to go on YouTube real quick. You go on YouTube, you got to sit through three fucking ads, and you're like, I just need this, I just need this. And then there's a kid that comes on who's like, hey, I'm here to teach you about masks. And he talks and he rambles for five and a half minutes before you actually get to the mask point. And you go, there's a period where I go, why, why don't you just tell me about the mask? And it wasn't until later that I was talking to folks that create on, on uh, YouTube and they're like, no, 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 it has to be a certain length. And so you got to fill that air. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I mean, I give you credit because when I'll click on those videos, the minute that I see that it's like a 13-year-old kid that's about to teach me how to do this mask, I'm like, I I, I can't. I, I got to read an article or something because I'm going to be too down on myself realizing that somebody half my age is, uh, is cooling me. Dude, you, that's important. <laughs> these, these kids come up in it, man. Like, think about the reverse learning that we have to it's like if i sat down to learn to play piano at 45 right now it'd be the most difficult thing in the world for me as opposed to if i'm you know gonna go learn from the kid that started playing piano at like six years old and it's like okay their brains absorb stuff quicker than ours do you know with the years of callus and dried up brain particles that are in there trying to learn this shit you know hundred percent. And, and I, it's funny that you say that. Cause even, you know, I, I, I feel like, um, when I was coming up in, in post-production, like me and my peers, you know, a lot of times what we were being asked to do was like, Hey, can you do like some of the quicker cut stuff? You know, the like more rapid, like, you know, editing, because I feel like, you know, we had come up as adolescents during maybe a little bit more of like a, um, I don't want to say like an, a, a digital literacy, yes. but like, yes. you know, it, it cer- certainly like cutting to the beat and, and some stuff like that, I feel like is a little bit more of, of a recent trend of maybe like the last 20 years. Right. Well, uh, yeah, um, to a certain extent, I think MTV really, fu- really shaped. And there was a whole, right. there was a whole generation of older filmmakers that were like, this is MTV cutting. Because MTV was yeah. all about like cutting to the beat, fast cuts, trying to make it as like impactful as possible as it crams itself between all these other videos that are running. Um, but yeah, I, I think it started there. And then as we sort of progressed into YouTube, you know, you have like those food videos that are just cut, 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 cut you know, and it's just someone right. cutting with a knife and you're using that sound effect to like jump cut everything, you know? hundred percent, hundred percent. And it, it, you know, to a certain extent, it's like you could have never done that with, uh, with film reels and, and a razor, oh, right? It would be a nightmare. I, I, I edited on a steam back back in the day. It would have been a fucking nightmare. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, I, I think it, 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 it is funny because I feel like to a certain extent, um, like my generation certainly benefited from that, but now being on the other side of it, I, I, I see how alarming it is of, you know, a cup being put in front of me and being like, 
how how is this edit possible? Like how how are you how are you hiding the cut in here? Like what what does this look like on the timeline? And, and it's just breaking my brain. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting about it is that you know those skills, um, you know, were very important to me when I was doing music videos, and I would use that stuff. Let's be real. I would use that stuff when the content wasn't at its best. For sure. And so like what you're doing then is the same. I've talked about this on the show multiple times. It's like when you're shooting a band, right? And you show up and you've never really met them and you get to the space and you have planned this thing out in your head and you're like, cool, I'm going to put the camera on a tripod and I'm going to film this person backlit and he's going to step into the light and he's going to fucking do a fucking slash solo and it's going to look epic. It's going to look amazing, right? So you set up everything, you look at the monitor, you're there on set, the guy comes out and, uh, you know, he's never really been on camera, steps in front of the light and he starts to play. Now he starts to play the way he plays in his trailer, the way he plays in his bedroom and it's completely nerdy and it's very yeah. small and it's uninteresting. <laughs> so you're looking at the monitor and you go, well, why does this suck? I've, I've got a really great camera. He's a great musician. His music is amazing. And the lighting looks fucking badass. Why does this clip suck? Oh, he doesn't know how to perform. Well, I'm not going to teach him how to perform in the next, you know, 10 minutes. So take the camera off the tripod and let me make it really shaky. And I'll perform for him yeah. as the camera yeah. operator. And that same technique follows through into the edit room where you're in the edit right. room and you're like, well, this is kind of fucking boring. I got to start to to perform with the edit, you right. know? And it saved a lot of younger projects. And, and look, that could very well fall on the fault of my own being a young director and not knowing how to communicate with folks. But then as I get older and I'm sort of processing through this, I'm literally doing this right now as I'm cutting a new short film I shot and I'm overcutting it. And I'm going through the process of looking at it going, this feels fucking forced. I have really great talent here. I don't need to cut that much. Let's let that shot run on like one shot instead of six cuts. Let's do that because the audience is connecting there. And that talent is actually conveying the emotion. So when I cut this much, I'm just, I'm distorting that emotion. I'm disrupting that emotion, you know? And I think that's something that's learned over time and with age, you know? hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think even when you do have the best material, right. When, even when you have an amazing performance, you know, when you get into the editing room, it's like, can I get, can I push it even further? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times you're right. It does come out of necessity and that's a great place to like craft those out. But I also, I, I, I think, and, and maybe this is just me as an editor speaking, and, and maybe this is also me uh, trying to dispel any any ideas that AI is going to take over post-production. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do feel like, you know, when, when you're, even if you're continuity editing, you know, even like when we do, you know, we do like a lot of scripted ads with Fujifilm. Yep. Um, e even when it's been completely shot for the edit, I've given the editor the previs, you know, I, I'm always like, if you feel something, just go for it. You know what I mean? Like we can always bring it back to what we shot it for, but I want to see your fingerprints on it. You know, um, peer review is, is the most uh, important thing that, that we have in this medium. It's one of the few truly collaborative mediums with dozens of people. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, as an editor, you, you, you should, you should walk in um, hoping to kick up some dust and maybe stir up some conversation. 
if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. But the upside is, you know, maybe you've made it that much better. Well, dude, you, I think the most important thing you said there is if you feel something. Right. I was watching an interview with, uh, what's his name, who cut Dune. And he was like, I do it until I feel something. And you go, that's the, I think that's why, um, you know, AI won't be able to take over that stuff. Sure, AI can examine, you know, the, the type of edits, the type of scenes that have made us feel a certain way prior, which is what we do as editors at a basic level. We sort of sit here and go, look, I know if I intercut uh, this close up with this wide shot, this is this is the feeling that has existed for hundreds of years doing that. I understand that. But what happens with with AI stuff is that they're running through the algorithm, they're sort of examining everything that exists, and they're just nostalgically recreating those things, at least currently it is. It's nostalgically recreating that vibe over and over and over again. But we're the ones ingesting it, you know? And so human brain is consistently changing based upon its environment and what it's exposed to and what it's seen and how it's seen specific things. And so when st stuff becomes too rhythmic, and this is something I learned when I was cutting music videos, if you're cutting on the beat all the fucking time, it becomes boring yeah. as shit. And so what you're trying to do is set the audience up for a ride and you go, all right, I'm going to cut to the drum beat here, 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 and then not here. And when I don't do it here, there's a reason why I don't do it here. And then that shifts the beat. And if you're shifting it in a clever way, it starts to catch itself up somewhere else. Maybe now I'm cutting to the lyrics and I'm not cutting to the drum beat. And, and then the audience rides with that and they go, got it. She says this, this, this. Okay, here comes the next cut. No, there isn't a cut there. Where's this next cut coming from? So you're swapping this stuff up to keep it feeling fresh, to keep feeling surprising, and to keep it feeling emotional for the audience. And I'm, I don't necessarily think AI can do that. And I, I think that if you are cutting, at the end of the day, if you don't feel something as an editor, then what the fuck are you doing in there, right? Might as well just be AI that's cutting the thing. Right. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, it, it, in, in the sense of like, you know, creating cut points, like cutting off, like, you know, the heads and, and, and tails of, of takes, I get it. Like, like I, I, I definitely see what people's vision, you know, is for it. But I, I, I do agree. Like, you know, just kind of running with that same example, like, you know, in, in those Fujifilm ads, we, we shoot a ton of improv mm. and a big part of that process, especially, you know, the first cut, the editor's cut is, I tell them like, I want to see some improv in there. You tell me what should be in there. You know, you go look through the takes. I want to know what you, what jumps out to you because obviously I thought it was fun. That's why we shot it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I don't need myself to reaffirm myself. I, I want you to go through and, and say, Hey, does this add to the piece? Is this funnier than what we had scripted? And then at that point, we're going to then sit down and have a conversation and, and, you know, try different things out. I just don't know if, if that kind of nuance um, is going to be able to be recaptured. Um, maybe that's me being, being optimistic. Um, but I, I, I do think that there are just so many applications where, um, you know, post-production and, and so many parts of, of the filmmaking process is trial and error, yes. you know, and yes. it is like juxtaposition and trying out different, um, different combinations and, playing on audience expectations and 
you know, maybe technology will get to a point where, where it can perfectly replicate that. Um, but I certainly hope it doesn't. Well, um, but to think, yeah. think about it, right? Maybe this is me being very short-sighted, but think about it. All it can do is create an experience for you. Because that's all it is. Like anytime we watch any of these things, it's an experience. It's the same thing as putting your shoes on and going for a hike at fucking Griffith Park. It's an experience. You're going to go for that hike and who knows who you're going to meet. Who knows if you're going to fall down the fucking mountain and break your leg. Like that, that's the experience. And so what we're doing as artists with films and music videos and commercials is we're creating microcosms of that. So experiences that come from a singular perspective, like a vision right? If it's, if it's uh, any of these pieces. So what we're doing is we're trying to create an experience that's special and that's unique. Now, I think AI can create experiences based upon other experiences that have already happened. Experiences that it runs through its, uh, its algorithm and goes, all right, I understand that this is a, what a romantic moment is. I understand that this is what uh, you know, a sci-fi moment from Ghostbusters looks like. And then there's this level of smashing that can happen where uh, it's inexpensive and it can go, well, what happens if I combine Ghostbusters and Hellraiser, right? Let me smash those two things together. And what that does to us is that serves us up this like nostalgic cheeseburger that just tastes a little bit different. And we go, wow, that's really great. But ultimately it's flat. Ultimately it's not a new other than like the smashing of that experience, you're not experiencing something weird and different and new. And I think that as humans, this is what we were saying at the beginning of this episode, you really can't become a filmmaker filmmaker until you've gone out there and experienced things through your eyes, through your life experiences, through the years of, of, of being raised by people that were experiencing it through their life experiences and through their eyes. And so like that weird sort of butterfly effect of uh, ingredients that make that experience so special to you is what, you know, makes us all very special snowflakes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in, in the universe, you know, if I'm going to get crazy with it, but I don't think the AI can create that. I think AI is essentially just, you know, playing with emotions that we've already set out and, uh, you know, just remixing those, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, I think the hope is, is that it's going to be a tool like anything else. Right. Yes. And, um, I think for that reason, like we shouldn't run away from it, you know, um, technology has, has pushed, you know, this, this medium forward since its inception, um, yeah. yep. you know, um, but I, I, I think that, uh, there is a human quality that again, whether it's optimistic thinking or not, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I just, I can't imagine having those same kind of conversations with a computer that I'm having with, you know our editor on a project. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then at that point, you're just trying to figure out the, like the right paragraph of description for the computer. Right. Uh, right. Uh, imagine right. that this is, uh, I'd like this edited like a uh, Steven Sonnenberg, uh, early two thousands film, AKA the limey with the color grading process of, uh, you know, this movie and then, uh, the running time of this movie. So you're just referencing other pieces of work at that point right. for it. And it's like, and, and, and that's when it becomes karaoke. Right? Exactly. Exactly. But we live in a time period of karaoke right now, which is like TikTok. Yeah. Like it's all, it's all karaoke. And so, you know, this was a, a conversation I was having with one of the artists that we're working with. Are you someone that is creating the track 
that is being sung in karaoke or are you just singing karaoke with the rest of us? Like, I agree. And, and, and just to build off the analogy further, I think there's a difference between sampling, yes, right? Like yes. putting out a new song that maybe is, is sampling yes. something that's familiar, something that's nostalgic, and then just doing a cover, right? Doing karaoke. Um, well, and, and really at, at, at all forms, it's, it's, uh, it, it's certainly, it's certainly become, you know, inescapable. Well, dude, I think it's the, I think the key ingredient here is intent, right? Right. What is your intent? Like if I'm going to sample the dog barking sound from Beastie Boys, I know that that has a specific emotional context. I know that that dark barking sound from that song made me feel this way every time I listen to that song. So I want to inject that feeling into this new story that I'm doing. So I'm going to take that emotional feeling. And it's, whether you're talking about sampling that or whether you're talking about using, you know, a 185 millimeter lens for the same reason. You're, you're, you're saying, hey, this is the language that comes with that tool. I'm going to tell a new story with, a, with that verbiage. I'm going to write a new script. As opposed to people who are like, I don't know how to tell a story. I just want to feel the uh, dopamine rush from being the center of attention for telling a story. So I'm just going to mime my way through this thing and uh, pretend like I'm this celebrity on screen and I'll feel good for about five minutes. But it's, it's ultimately empty. You know what I mean? When you do that. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, you know, I think about like Stranger Things on Netflix, right? Now, I, I feel like sometimes Stranger Things probably gets a little bit more of the karaoke label that it deserves because I, I ultimately do think it it's is, a- it is pulling from a bunch of different places, yeah. which to me makes it feel uh, original. But I think more where you get this is, you know, I don't necessarily have like a problem with like reboot culture. Like, I don't mind adaptations. You know, most most great works are adapted from elsewhere. You know, how many great films have been adapted from, you know, novels, fables, et cetera. Right. Um, I mean, look at Tarantino, you know, I get like all of our greats, like the, the, we, I mean, all, a lot of listeners of the show, like me are huge fans of John Carpenter's the thing. It's a fucking remake, which is based upon a book. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I mean, I'm I'm probably like the only person in in the Babylon hive, but you know, that, that like (laughs) film ultimately is like a, 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 you know, a sample and and a reimagining of ultimately what like singing in the rain is doing, but it, it, it totally stands on its own. It's totally trying to do a different thing. I, I don't mind reboot culture and drawing influences from that. I think where you get into trouble is when it's like, Hey, you know, major studio is going to reboot X franchise and have the exact same plot points as the beginning, you know, as the original one. And that's when it starts to feel like deja vu. You know, yes. that's when it starts to feel like you're bringing this back, but you're not giving, I, I know the filmmakers on there, you know, on that project at every level want to put their fingerprints and their stamp on this. Um, and if we're not going to let them do that, then what's the point of, of, even you know trotting it back out anyway well dude it comes back to what we were saying intent what's the yeah. intent what's the intent why are you why are you telling this story what is the intent you know are you doing this to make money right primarily are you doing this as a, a get rich quick scheme because there's so many people that are in our business that come in the business of doing that they're the same people that are going to invest in an app the same people that are going to invest in something that 
that they feel like is going to catch fire and make them cash really fucking quick. Uh, that's their intent. And, you know, oftentimes you need those people around in order to finance your work, in order to make your stuff happen. But you hope that from a storyteller's perspective, you hope that when you sit down and you watch something and you feel something and that it connects to you and it changes your life in one way or another at, at its peak, you hope that the intent is pure. You hope that the intent is somebody saying, I have experienced this thing and I'd like it to share it with you because it's going to make your life more interesting. You, you hope that that's what the intent is. And I think that in our, in our world of content right now, it's very shaky. You're, you're constantly, we can go off and diatribe on this. Like I, I start talking about these docs that are on fucking Netflix lately, right? Where you see all these documentaries about uh, certain celebrities, like the documentary about the prince and uh, the, even the recent Pamela documentary that just came out. It's like, was the intent to tell an interesting story here or was the intent to fix her reputation after all these television shows came out? Was the intent of the royal prince, his documentary, to tell you the story of how it actually works or was the intent to fix his reputation to make more money with this kind of thing? And you, you really have to ask yourself why people are making these pieces as you watch them. Because they're using all the same clever emotional techniques that we would use for something that comes from a good place. But what's the fucking reason for making it? You know? 100%. And then with documentaries especially, like the angle is so important. Dude. You know, because I, th I, I think, um, you know, at, like, you know, I'll, I'll just say like, like uh, when, when we work on, on our docs, like we have to be conscious of the fact that like they are looked at journalistically. You know, yeah. there are, there are things that you have to keep in mind in terms of there are lines to be crossed of, are you taking somebody out of context? You know, are you, you know, coming in with, with preconceived notions about your subject or, or the folks that you're interviewing and not letting it be a discovery. Ultimately, any documentary is going to have the angle, the perspective and the opinion of the filmmakers working on it. That's inescapable. And I honestly feel like we probably as a culture should have, you know, viewers should have more consciousness of that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. But I, th but I think as filmmakers as well, like we kind of always look at it of, you know, ultimately like, is our angle on this fair? Is our angle on this truthful? Um, and let's make sure that, that we're not trying to, to, you know, fit a square peg in, into a circular hole because that's our preconceived notion on it, you know? But then you also have to ask yourself, because you guys have done stuff for musicians. You also have to ask yourself, like, who's paying for it? Like, uh, right. I was an executive producer on The Godfather's a hardcore movie. Um, and that was, like, the, the conversation. Like, who's paying for it? And if, if the artist is paying for it, what's their objective? What's the reason for it? Right? Because no one in their right mind is going to pay you money to expose the reality of their life. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, cause at the end of the day, like when you put stuff on screen that really sort of shows how someone is, we're not, we're not used to seeing that. Right. I mean, first off, when we look at ourselves in reflections, we're always seeing ourselves reversed in a reflection. So when you actually see yourself up on the screen, you look weird to yourself. So right off the bat, the person that is doing it is going to be like, huh, that's strange. 
And then you start to reveal as an outside perspective how they handle things in life, how they process specific things. They're going to look at that and go like, ugh, ah, and are they the one financing that? And does that person then come in the room and go, you got to cut out that bit where I look like a fucking asshole here. And you go, yeah, you might look like an asshole here, but then the growth that you do over the process of this film is is the most important aspect of this because you have the ability to be an asshole, but then you have an ability to grow. And so anybody that watches this piece goes, it's okay if I'm an asshole, and as long as I'm going to grow beyond this. And I, look at, I admire this guy for for advancing as a human being, but that becomes difficult based upon a the intent of why it was made, and then b, um, you know, who's fucking financing it? You know, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, I I think that ultimately like. For us, that's been like a pretty big litmus test and, and not just with docs and, and artists specifically, but like even in terms of like, you know, the brands that we really like to work with, you know, on the commercial side, how how are you looking at the content that we're going to be putting out on your yeah. behalf and that we're going to really be be working towards, you know, are are, are are you honestly just trying to convert and and create a sale or are you trying to build something, you know, and, and shape yourself as a brand and, and create a brand voice and, and identity. And that's not to say that, that there's anything wrong with the former, you know, obviously like it's a business, you know, there, there are transactional elements to it and there are also, you know, business realities. But I think that we gravitate more towards let's collaborate. Like let's both put ourselves out there and yeah. do something that feels authentic and effective and like, it's actually going to, impact a viewer rather than just you know be a puff piece for a product a person whatever it might be wait which is a tough thing right because it's it's all about marketing and it's all about like convincing people to buy that warehouse full of shit that that person has <laughs> right? right at the right. end of the day and so when you're this is the the longer i've been in the game and the older i am the more i have respect for both ends of it i have respect for just straightforward ads like they're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to like disguise the fact that they're trying to sell us their warehouse full of stuff by saying, hey, we believe in this social sort of commentary. I respect sort of the, hey, here's the deal. Brand new camera on the market. I got a bunch of them. They're really cool. You got to buy it right now. Good to go. Right? And you're like, right. fuck yeah. All right, cool. That's it. You're not, you're not trying to uh, disguise it behind something beyond that. Um, I think that you know, marketing has always been very deceptive. And I think marketing has always been very calculating and manipulative. And, you know, we're how many generations in on just, you know, being inundated with, uh, you know, psychologically studied marketing techniques. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's an interesting place. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to get I, so dark. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I mean, I definitely hear you. I, and, and, and I think too, there, there also is like the, the distinguishment between, you know, functional advertising yep. and w which is purely like, we're going to put the product in front of you, like, you know, like e-commerce, right? Yep. Here it is. You know, we're clearly trying to, to sell it to you. I think it's, it's when, you want to cross the threshold of something that's functional into being something that maybe cuts through more. Maybe you want to make a mission statement, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you want to reach your audience. I kind of feel like there's, there's no half measures there. Yeah. You know, you kind of got to lean into it fully because 
the minute that, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I feel like the example that always comes up, right. is like that Pepsi ad with like, um, I can't even remember which Kardashian is in it, but it's like, you know, a, a, a social justice ad that then has like the Pepsi product, like front and center. It's like, yeah, if you're trying to make a statement about, you know, um, what, what's, what's going on in the world, make the statement and just let the fact that you put it out there be enough of, of the advertising, maybe walk back the product you know yeah 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 but then but then it's the intent right is the uh, is the giant boardroom full of uh shareholders for pepsi like we really give a shit about this or are they like hey this is a great opportunity for us to put uh more sugar soda in the mouths it's, it's very it's very true of it's kids very in true. africa yeah that's the devil and, that and, we work with when we work in advertising though you know, and that's why, and that's why I think when 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 it comes to the ad space, I I, I think like you know really sussing out and and kind of approaching those situations of of wanting it to be collaborative. Um, not every brand is going to be receptive to that, but yeah. the ones that are, yeah. I think there is a, a lot of great work that can be done there in that space, and um, I, I I think there's a there's a lot of fun to be had there. But I I definitely hear you that some it's coming in with just the intent of let's check these boxes and put it out. <laughs> it's unfair of me to dump that on you too on the show. Yeah. I end up going down the tirade, but you know, it, it always floats to the surface with me. Like whenever I do ads, I'm always asking myself those ethical questions. And I think a lot of those ethical questions came at me after doing docs. Right. Right. I mean, you, you spent a lot of time doing documentary work and you realize that you're manipulating human beings. And not just the people that are watching it, but you're manipulating the human beings that you've captured on film. And so as soon as you go into an edit room and you're taking the, oh, you know what? We need to really hit this emotional beat here. He's wearing the same shirt three days earlier. So when he's pissed because he just got off the phone with his wife, let's grab that heads and put it after this statement here to really punctuate the fact that he should be upset at this statement that happens right now. And you know that that's the ultimate manipulation of of emotional stuff. And and I've done entire episodes with other documentary filmmakers about this. And like, you know, if you're going to be successful as a documentary filmmaker, you you have to sort of like, you know, super inject your documentary subjects with drama and rhythmic drama that everybody understands and sees all the time. And and you know that's a big process for it. It, it just becomes like you know a little gross. You know what I mean? When you're, when you're no, in, in the room doing that. I think you're totally right that, that you start to realize um, the impact your brushstrokes can have, you know, when, when you're putting it out. And, and a lot of times it's stuff that's like subconscious. Um, I think doc definitely brings that to the forefront because you are working with true stories, real individuals, um, mm -hmm. you know, real impact. But I, I think you're right that, that from an advertising standpoint, like I definitely feel like, you know, coming from the doc space, it, it made us um, approach advertising a, a, a little bit differently. I, I, I also feel like, you know, for me, I don't know, my, my preference has been, and it's, it's not right for every brand, but my preference has always been, you know, what attracts me the most to a brand is um, when they're talking at level to me, when yeah. it feels like I have some kind of relationship with them, when it feels like they like actually get me and aren't just looking at, you know, demographic data that they're like, you know, PR agency is, is giving. And I think in a, in a lot of the projects that we've tried to do in that space, it's like, 
let's talk about, you know, who the audience muses and, and let's do something that feels like it's talking to them like a peer and, and not like we're, you know, only interested in, in converting their sales, but, um, yeah, no, not, not every brand is able to do that. You know? No, no, no. And those are the brands that you want to have. I've, I mean, I've had relationships with, uh, brands like Dale strong companies that really, you know, understand there's an understanding that we go into it. Like, look, you've got a warehouse full of knives. You got to sell, got it. But also let's be honest and tell really great stories about what it feels like to use your stuff. Like what if, what the opportunities that can arise if you are using these things as tools and you are using the, these things the right way. And sure, we can romanticize what the potential could be with you working with this stuff. That always feels very sort of safe to me as far as a storyteller with, you know, morals. <laughs> you sort of sit there and you go, yeah, all right, man, I can, I, I can dig that. If I'm going to do a commercial about a shovel, we're going to show like how fucking badass this hole can be that we dig it. If I happen to get that shovel out of the warehouse and we try to dig a hole with it and the fucking handle breaks, I'm going to have a little bit of trouble making those ads because that would get a lie because the handles are fucking breaking all the time. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but there are a few companies that do that. And, you know, we have a shared relationship with Fuji. I think one of the things that I like about Fuji film as a company is that at least the people that are front facing, because I haven't met everybody at that company, but you know, Victor and all the folks that I've met that are front facing at that company, they really give a shit. They, they not only give a shit about their, their uh, product, which I think is important, but they more give a shit about the stories and how that tool is going to get used. And so anytime I talk about them on the show, it's always about, um, you know, the potential. Here's the potential, and here's a company that is going to support the potential and not necessarily just make a product that they're going to sell you on the shelves. It's about supporting you, the person that's going to use this product, and just being in the room with them, like being asked to be in the room to be part of, uh, you know, their research and development groups on like how to build a better camera. And they, they really give a shit, you know, and how'd you get involved with them initially? Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, well, first of all, let me just say for all the listeners, this is not a, a brand read by any means. This is this is truly yeah. <laughs> how, how I, I, I feel about them. I mean, um, I can't speak highly enough about, about the Fujifilm team. Um, you know, we, we got connected with them in a little bit of a roundabout way. Um, one of our, uh, of the co-founders of MGX, uh, Daniel Malachar was actually a Fujifilm, um, photographer and creator, oh. uh, an ambassador of the brand. Okay. And at one point they, you know, right as we were starting the production company, um, you know, it, it kind of spurred, oh, well, you know, we could use some video content, you know, why don't you guys knock out a, a few of these smaller projects for us? Um, and what that eventually turned into is, is what has now been, you know, a, a five, six year relationship and, and truly a partnership. Like I, I think with all of our brands, we, we really try to think of them as partnerships. And, and I think there's no better example of that than, than Fujifilm. Um, because ultimately like they have really been a opened our collaboration, but also given us an amazing roadmap to work from, mm -hmm. you know, I think that their vision for what they want their brand to be, how they want to impact consumers, the conversations they want to have around their cameras. It was very clear. It, it was very fresh. Um, and it was very daring and yeah. they kind of laid it out for us in, you know, 
I'd say, I don't want to say broader terms, but more of like an overall umbrella of this is where we're trying to go mm-hmm. on the content side. How can we get there? Mm-hmm. And w- what's been great about that relationship is, you know, we've kind of been able to fill in the gaps of, of, you know, us knowing the form really well, but you knowing your market really well, your demos really well, how can we collaborate to, to do something that, that, you know, at least in my opinion, I feel like no other camera brand is doing. And ultimately, like, I think the result of that has been, you know, all of our advertisements we do for them. It's all humorous. It's, Mm -hmm. it's all comedy based. I would liken them um, more like comedy sketches than ads. (laughs) I can tell you process wise, it's usually what would be really funny to do is the first conversation we write the script and then the second draft is okay how do we get a product in here um but but i think that's i, I my hope would be that that feels evident in the in the final product that yeah we were sort of going to make this regardless if we had to push this lens or not mm-hmm. um but it just so happened to have an organic fit in in this in this sketch um yeah, dude, I completely agree, and and I think it's important that we point this out because you know I just went on this tangent talking about advertising and and so the morals of advertising. You know, I'm completely transparent. Fujifilm is sponsoring the show now. Now, I didn't approach Fujifilm. I didn't approach them and say, "Hey, would you guys like to sponsor us?" And Fujifilm didn't approach me. They didn't come to me and say, "Hey, we'd like to sponsor you. Can we figure out some clever way of doing ad reads?" That was never the the intent with any of it. I met Victor at an Adobe party at Cinegear. Mm. And, you know, he came up to me thinking I was somebody else. So, so the original meet was that he thought I was somebody else. And he came over and he's like, are you so-and-so? And I'm like, no, that's that guy over there. And he goes, huh? Well, and, and I was already in a heated debate about cinema with somebody else in this conversation. And he sat down, he plopped right down next to me and he was kind of exhausted. And he goes, what are we talking about? And so then we started to talk. And so over the course of a few beers, him and I sort of, we really dialed in as humans where we started to talk about our, our, um, our opinion on like creation, on supporting creation of like what is great, what is not great. We talked about food. And the next thing you know, we're having what essentially is a podcast episode with the two of us sort of sitting there. And he looks at me and he's like, man, it's really nice to meet you. And I go, yeah, it's really nice to meet you. This is honesty. This is intent, right? And so after we have this conversation, I go, dude, we should do this on the fucking microphones because you have such great stuff to say, regardless of whether or not you work for Fujifilm. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to come by. Two days, three days later, he's sitting on my couch. We sit, <laughs> we sit, we go, and we do a whole podcast episode together. And it's a bromance at its core, right? So we're sitting there, we're talking about stuff. Everything's firing. We wrap the episode. And he's like, you want to get food? And I go, yes, let's get fucking food. And so then we go out. We go, we sit at the bar, we have food, and we start talking about that food. He knows what a foodie I am, and he's a foodie. And so we start to order these weird dishes and have this stuff. And then like, we wrap up everything. And he goes, dude, I want to support your show. That was how it happened. Right. So it, there was no, uh, you know original intent as far as like, well, Fuji's got to incorporate their way into this audience and we have to figure out a way to do this. That is the purest form of it. That's why I love advertising for these guys. That's why I love talking to these guys. Because beyond that, 
uh, I've talked to the Fujifilm filmmakers and each and every one of those filmmakers have been like, I just hung out with Victor and Victor was like, how come you're not chasing your dream? Let's help you support chasing your dream. You should make a movie. You're a photographer. You've always wanted to make a movie, right? Why don't we give you the funds and the access to make a film? And you can do that. That's the shit. That's what I think separates them apart from all these other camera companies that I've ever worked with is that there hits this point where you feel like those camera companies hire a PR department and that PR department sort of runs through the, okay, let me figure out what fucking YouTube shows are hot shit and we'll send them a bunch of emails. Hey, would you like some gear? Would you like to unbox these things? You know, just make sure you say Fujifilm or make sure you say, you know, whatever this other camera company is at the back end of it. None of that was the process for this, you know? No, and, and I think that that whole sentiment, like, it, 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 it extends to their whole team. Like, like I, I, I really do feel like they, you know, as a brand, because the people behind the brand um, feel like peers um, and, and, and kind of are, are coming at it with the, with the right, I don't want to say attitude, but, but they, they genuinely love photography, yeah. right? They love yeah. filmmaking. And so for that reason, I, I think it kind of, you know, with, with all their creators and, and certainly with us as well, it's just far more receptive and, and so much more about, you know, we are an imaging company. We, we are celebrating, um, what it means to create photos, to create, you know, films. So why should our content not feel like it's made by filmmakers for filmmakers? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for, in the case of like, you know, the filmmakers that you've had on the past, those are literally exercises of them saying, let's make films for, let's make filmmakers by our filmmakers and, and for our audience. Yeah. Um, but even, even for, for us in, in, in our ads, a lot of the time, you know, it kind of feels like, to a certain extent, like we're, we're advertising to ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, again, I, I hope that quality comes out that like, you know, everything that we're putting out there is, is, um, based off things that we've felt as, as creators. And, and, um, I don't know, it feels like humor. That's very niche and exclusive. I, I think the best thing, like I said, that an ad can do is, is to make you feel seen. Um, yes. and yes. I, I, th I think that they have really, let us, you know, push the envelope there. And, and they've been bold enough to take risks with us that I, I, I think have gotten it to a point that all of us wouldn't have imagined when we first started working together, because ultimately like, it wasn't like we came in with a, a grand plan of like, <laughs> here, here's, here's this like scripted sketch comedy, you know, series that we want to do for the brand. Like it wasn't that big of a, a of a leap of faith where it really started is, you know, the first kind of projects we were working on together were functional advertising. Like I mentioned earlier, like yeah. here's a product sizzle, endless black void, dramatic lighting, <laughs> camera on a turntable with a rounded <laughs> mirror on it. You know, we're going to put the product features on screen. Yep. There's no question about what we're trying to do. We're trying to educate you about the product. We're trying to inform you about the product and at the end of the day, this is, this is a necessary asset. You yes. know, when somebody walks into a Best Buy, they need to see this. When somebody walks to a trade show, wants to learn more about the product, you, you, to a certain extent, you need it to be that basic. Yes. Um, yes. And we shot it totally straight. I, me, the whole team at MGX, we were never thinking let's, let's, you know, try to do something a little bit off the wall here. We were like, well, this is, this is just one where, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a little bit of a, of a layup, right? Yeah. And when we finished production, 
our first day of post, we, we had a meeting and um, our editor, Josh, was pulling tracks and we were trying to look, it was obviously so dependent on the music. We were trying to decide what track we were going to use. Yeah. And he pulled one that he was like, you know, I, I don't even know if I want to, I don't even know if I want to play this for you guys. Like it kind of has a good beat. I feel like it, it, it probably wouldn't like make it to the final and he plays it. And it's almost, it was almost like one of those scenes in like a, like a music biopic, <laughs> like Bohemian Rhapsody or something where they're like all sitting in the studio, like, man, we just don't have like the single for this album yet. And they're all frustrated. And then like somehow out of nowhere, the guitarist just starts like playing the first four chords of like another one bites the dust. Yeah. And then suddenly Rami Malek knows all the lyrics to it right off the dome. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it kind of felt like that moment because he plays this track and it's this really sensual quasi pornographic wild, like R and B track. Yeah. yeah you know, very like, <laughs> and it would have never been something that came to any of our minds, but like we heard it and it kind of became this earworm where I think we actually decided to go with another track, but all of us kept kind of going back to, I don't know, that first track, it's kind of funny though, you know, like, because it's, it's such a a functional ad, but when you put that under it, yeah, it becomes something else. Sorry, go ahead. It's become something else. Yeah. (laughs) It it feels like we're making fun of the fact that it's a functional ad. And because the purpose of this ad is so clear, there wasn't a ton of risk involved, you know, like it it starts to feel a little bit irreverent and we know, you know, this, this ad is for you guys to salivate over the camera and for us to market it to you. Like that's the interaction going on here. So let's just make it, you know, let's make it like a little goofy and, we ended up putting it in. Um, <laughs> we ended up sending it to Fujifilm. I for sure thought it was going to get flagged. And I think that was the moment that, that I knew that, you know, collab, you know, as a collaboration, we, we, we really had something, you know, them and, them and us because they, they loved it for the same reasons we did. We put it out and, and the engagement immediately blew up of this song, this, this ad, like, yeah. you know, and, and what that actually meant for, for the product sales, I, I couldn't speak on, but I know in terms of the engagement, not only the quantity of it, but the quality of it was such a clear, we feel seen by you as a brand. Um, and that was really the genesis of it where we began to look at it with Fujifilm of, I guess, maybe these ads, maybe we need to stop thinking of the the function of the ad and start thinking, like you said earlier of the intent, you know, how do we want to be seen in the space? Like, and and how can we push the boundaries of what defines an ad? Um, So that was sort of the, the entry point and, and the gateway drug, I guess you could say. Yeah, dude, you know, and we're we're probably going to start wrapping this up. And I think what is um, interesting about this episode is sort of how it evolved. And I think, the thing to take away, the thing that you may, those of you listening, that you may want to take away from this episode is that there's no such thing as, unless you're like independently wealthy, there's no such thing as a world in which you can create your art without having to take, you know, money into effect, right? Money has to be a part of it. And so there isn't a world in which 
your your work isn't going to be influenced by money one way or another, right? Uh, it may influence the casting, it may influence the running time, it may influence the tone, the vibe, and the hope is as a storyteller that it's not leveraging your uh, ahead of your intent as a storyteller. That's the hope. And as we talked about, you know, making your way into this business and having to start somewhere, right? Do music videos, do commercials, do that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a sense of desperation, right? Money is a sense of desperation for you, where it's like, we got to get paid, we got to take this job, we got to do this gig. But companies like this exist out there. And we're talking about Fujifilm because we share that uh, as, a, as a relationship, but I, I've had this relationship with Dale Strong. I've had this relationship with many other companies. Um, and you may not work as frequently, um, but you can find these companies that uh, you feel comfortable making content for that support you as an artist and that help you grow as a storyteller. Um, and it just doesn't feel slimy and gross. Like it, it, it does exist out there. And I think you just have to be very cautious and careful who you go work for and who you find. Um, and, uh, you know, if you do it right, then at the end of the day, you know, 20 years from now, you'll be able to look back and go, I have a really great relationship with those guys. You know, like my buds at Puget Systems. I love those guys. The support that they've given, they finances, they financed and complete short films for me. I love them for that. So just be smart about who you work for and and how you hunt them down. You know? I totally agree. I totally agree. Judge the the person on the other side, not the the medium sometimes. You yes. Know? Yes, 100%. Andrew, this has been great, man. I, I really appreciate you allowing me to take you down this dark path. <laughs> no problem, Mike. I, I, thanks for having me on. It was uh, it was fun covering everything and, and uh, anything. <laughs> Hopefully we made one or two good points and it wasn't just, you know, 97 minutes of uh, rambling and uh, convincing ourselves that AI is not coming for all of us. <laughs> and for all you know, this episode was created by AI. Maybe it wasn't yeah. us actually on here doing it. <laughs> uh, but thanks so much, Andrew, for being on the show. Likewise. Appreciate it. There it is, today's episode in the can. Uh, Andrew was great. He's a good sport. I I always feel bad for some of my guests that I have on the show um, when we sort of fall down into these tangents um, and uh, I start uh, to get a little dark. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's my fault as a show host, you know. But you know what it is, is that we try to be as honest as possible on the show. Um, and I try to put out there the energy of honesty to my guests. And um, we connect pretty quickly, as you can hear, uh, based upon that. And so what oftentimes happens is, is that I'm learning and my, my neurons are firing the same way yours are firing. And I go, oh, this makes sense because this connects to this and this connects to that and this connects to this. And oftentimes you'll hear me go down into a dark and cynical hole. I think that's because of 
look, where I come from, right? So I'm Generation X, right? I'm a little bit older than you guys, and I'm in the tail end of Generation X. And I'm not saying that Generation X is a better generation. I mean, a bunch of the people that I grew up with were a bunch of fucking idiots too. Like it's, I'm not saying that one generation is better than the next. I just, we were, I think one of the last generations that still had mistrust for the government, still had mistrust for large corporations. Um, they're some of these bigger commercial campaigns that were trying to rewrite narratives. Uh, and honestly, you know, corporations trying to register themselves as individuals, right? Cause that's, that, that didn't happen when I was a kid that happened when many of you guys were kids, like giant corporations going, no, 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 I'm an individual and I'm your bud, right? Writing you emails like, Hey, what's up, Tom? It's your old bud, uh, you know, Coca-Cola here. Um, we're just letting you know, life's been good. You know, the wife got pregnant. You know, you get those fucking emails, right? And that really sort of affects the way you process uh, consumerism and capitalism, right? Uh, with us, Generation X, we, we didn't trust any of that shit. If I got an email from fucking, you know, Honda, you know, claiming to be my buddy, I'd be like, what is this bullshit? You know? Uh, so when you hear me go down these dark paths, that's where it comes from. Okay. And, uh, I don't want to sound like the, uh, cynical old dude on the porch. Um, I think that there's so many great things that are coming out today. I think there's so many great opportunities, so many great tools that are presenting themselves. Um, I can make movies basically on my own, which I love because of all this technology, because of all these techniques. Um, but just because I can, doesn't mean that I should. And I'm always trying to work and collaborate with as many people as possible to find real life experiences. And we sort of touched upon it. I should get some AI guys on the show. We kind of touched upon this AI thing. And this is sort of like this dark sort of tidal wave that is approaching us that many creatives are, are scared of. And I understand it, right? Because, you know, we're seeing this with concept artists, right? That feel like they're work is being hijacked and their style is being hijacked by some AI and people are just recreating what seems to be their work, uh, which is based upon their old work without them getting paid or even any sort of um, recognition for it, right? Which is kind of shitty. And then we're seeing it translate into uh, filmmaking, right? And, you know, I just sat around the other day and I was listening to that AI-generated Joe Rogan podcast episode. It's so you know, it, it, it is something that's coming. It is something that, you know, us as creators, people that are in this business and making a, a live, like a livelihood in this business, um, I, how is AI going to affect all that? Is the fact that, you know, uh, an ad agency or even a client can log into a website, type out a few sentences and have an image created, is that going to affect um, the value of image making? Is that going to affect the value of content creation? Yes, it is. No, no matter how how much I want to sugarcoat that, yes, it is. And so at the end of the day, we're going to have to shift the way that we're working in this business. And many people are not going to be able to work in this business. Uh, is there going to be a business at the, that looks like this at all for the next generation once you get into sort of this content creation? Right, and suddenly the places that we're relying on in order to stay afloat uh, to create our art are not going to be existent. 
in the same way that they are right now. So my only defense for any of this artificial intelligence created content is currently it is a remix thing. As we said on the show, it is um, a karaoke of sorts where, you know, this algorithm is searching at all these different resources, all these different places and pulling uh, relevant visual information, relevant sound information, and creating a nostalgic recreation of whatever that sentence instruction that was that you gave it. Um, and some of the stuff is surprisingly gorgeous, and a lot of the stuff feels very nostalgic and satisfying. Um, but there's going to be a limit to that. There's this, and I, 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 I almost don't want to talk about it on the show, but there's this hardware that's out there too for photographers. And I I don't want to get too specific about what this hardware is. But there's a piece of hardware that exists that you can put on top of your camera and that it will communicate via the internet. Uh, and it will uh, talk to the camera and say, this is where you are, uh, longitude and latitude on the planet. And it will hunt through the internet and find all of the best photographs that were shot in that area um, and, and set your camera settings based upon time of day and everything else to get the best photograph uh, created based upon other photographs that are out there. And um, it exists and you see it as a photographer and you go, what is this, a fucking cheat sheet? And yeah, if you want to create a great image, that's, uh, you know, a, very much a cheat sheet. <laughs> It's an automatic setting, right? When they put automatic settings on exposure for cameras, it's the same kind of vibe. But I will say this as I rant. I will say this. What that algorithm doesn't have, what this AI doesn't have, is your brain, your life experiences. As of now, it doesn't have that stuff. So there, there is a value in that. There's a value in you getting out of your house. There's a value in you going out for a walk, going out for a meeting, interacting with human beings, taking the recipe taking the, the the boiling pot of ingredients that is you as an individual and as a voice and and putting that out there and having that bounce up against somebody else having that go through some sort of situation and then through that situation examining and telling a story based upon it from your vision algorithm can't do that yet i mean at some point it will be able to and at some point ai will be creating stuff that we're learning from and there'll be a whole younger generation that is just learning from an algorithm right is that what you want and do you feel like that algorithm is teaching you something that is based in reality and how important is that to you so a lot of really serious questions with this stuff um i don't have the answers by no means and like you there's a sense of fear because you're worried that your job will disappear. You're worried that will become irrelevant. But I argue this, at least in my lifetime, my situation, my voice, what I go through because of my recipe, because I'm a, I'm a generation that still had a landline phone on the wall. Um, I see things differently than you do. And that's good. You see things differently than I do because of where you come. That's good. That's not an algorithm doing that. I think that's the value in the work we have. So lean into that. Use that as a comfy blanket as uh, tech bros. 
go and destroy another fucking industry with their shit. There it is. There's the darkness. Um, but thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. <laughs> uh, I appreciate everybody. And um, as always, I will see you next Tuesday with most likely a lighter episode that doesn't go as dark. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.